We're in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is second to last message after the missions month that we will conclude with the final message. But today, the title is simply Examine Yourselves. Um, this exhortation emerged out of Paul's concern, Apostle Paul's concern for Corinthian problems, the problems in Corinth. And uh, as I mentioned a few times, even uh, throughout the series, the Corinthian church is much like the Californian church. So, in a some sense, humorous way, some other uh, pastors, preachers have called this Second Californians, or in chapter 13 of Second Californians. I want to start with this kind of learning process for us because the Corinthian problem still exists in our today's church. It is not just a first century church problem, but it is actually as relevant as just this week it's going on. Let me summarize in four ways. Um, first one is misguided theology or misguided doctrine. To put it succinctly, it is really the center problem. Who's at the center of your Christian life? Who's at the center of church life and this universe? If we men and women are in the center, me, I myself is in the center, it's all about God has to useful. God blesses us if we trust in him, obey, and such and such blessings will happen. Transactional relationship. God must be useful. Obviously, we would dare not to use the word useful God, but the word like God is just abundantly blessing God. They have truth in that. But biblical uh, theology, sound doctrine is God is sovereign. What does sovereign mean? One who does all things in his will, in his desire, and in his plan. So if I say, People, you know what? I decide to do whatever I want to do. Then you should be worried. Because I'm sinful in nature, and uh, a lot of things that I might be doing is from my point of view, my self-gain, and that will be absolutely wrong way of doing it. But transcendent God, holy God is, God is other than us. Otherness of God means that God is not like me. God is absolutely holy, consistently righteous. And he's good. And that he, who he is good, is all-powerful, all-sovereign, 
nothing under his sovereign control happens, including evil, sufferings, and pain. Some of the things that God's wisdom we will may not understand until we die physically and see him face to face. And on that day, we will know. But God is sovereign. He invites us to his plan rather than we invite God to help us to accomplish our plan. I'll do such and such thing that you'll be pleased by me. The much of that is going on in today's world as well. Number two is misguided guided spirituality. It, it is a consequence of that wrong doctrine and misguided uh, theology. Misguided spirituality means self-improvement rather than self-denial. And if you don't watch out, if the pastors don't watch out, we could capitulate into this need-oriented spirituality. Seven ways to improve your marriage life. Oh, that, that will sell better than self-examine yourself <laughs> title. Three key principles of making your family happy and content. Five bullet 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 no, not bullet. affair proof ways to protect your marriage. Seven key principles of parenting that will revolutionize your kids. So in some sense, I want to go to church, I want to become better father, better worker, better pastor, and better lover. And all that is good in one sense, right? But if you look at that, you could become such eager self-help person who is full of yourself rather than full of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that all over. Sadly, even starting with so-called Christian TV, people full of themselves. What does it mean to deny yourself and humble yourself? A genuine humility. We need much example, real-life example. People like Paul. And as I've said before, I think I'm the one who has been benefit the benefited the most from the Second Corinthians studies. Because it changes and challenges what pastoral role, the spiritual role, spiritual leader's role in the church or even outside the church, which is absolutely very contrasting in what's going on around the world even so-called evangelical churches. Number three, that leads to misguided leadership, which is personality leadership. 
someone who looks very self-confident. So therefore, the leadership strategy is that you build your own strength and your own confidence in you and believe in yourself, better at your skills, and rather than the leader with the character. Character of Christ, meekness. I know some of you are tired of hearing this, but I want to repeat myself continually as a commitment. You know, one thing you could pray for me is, God, make Paul, make Pastor Paul a meek person. A meek person is someone who, whom Holy Spirit can control very easily because there's no resistance. And because of that, the person is controlled by the humility in the Holy Spirit. But to be honest with you, I'm too eccentric in my personality, and too eccentric in some some my strong opinions and my personality. I am forceful, intense. I don't want to lead by that. But today's world, someone who's on the stage, is someone who has a big church, someone who's leading the conference, the spiritual leaders are all personality-driven. Who made it? It, it is sad to realize, if you really realize, if Apostle Paul is in today's world, he will not be keynote speaker of the conference. He will not lead a big crusade of big conferences and big church because of his nothing to show for, too modest in his style, and his public skill is not really great at all. I mean, some people get bored to sleep. And once again, I, th I think we need much of, even among the lay leaders' point of view. What does it look like when someone is God-confident, the humble confidence, not a fake, pseudo-humility confidence, but someone who is absolutely convinced of our own frailty and brokenness. The humility is genuine. But it is not a self-absorbed way of leading ministry, self-condemning way. Woe is me, I can't do anything, don't let me do anything. But God is greater than any problem I have. God doesn't have any limitation, therefore I must not limit God because of my own limitation. Humble confidence brings us the supernatural confidence that from our side point of view, that guy doesn't have anything. That girl doesn't have anything. How does he, how, how does she do that? Because of God confidence, because of the Holy Spirit's empowerment. And lastly, misguided faith. In today's world, this is going on so much, and which really related to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, final warning. The reason why 
Apostle Paul is bringing because of this Corinthian problem, which exists in today's world. Misguided faith is easy believism. Salvation by grace and grace alone, and faith and faith alone, which is a correct doctrine, but if you make that fluffy easy, it becomes a cheap grace rather than true genuine grace. True genuine grace costs everything on God's part. But it's still free to us. Easy believism. Just believe in this. Some of the well-meaning uh, people, I don't think they're evil, to sell this misguided faith will say, so put your hand that on that TV screen. You, maybe you may be on, on in, in your, uh, sitting in the bar. Just say this. I believe in Jesus died for me. Please forgive me. I am a Christian in Jesus' name. I, by no means, I, I'm not limiting God's power to heal and restore and save the person who is drunk in a bar. Not at all. But easy believism emphasize on verbal profession of faith. Saving faith, your internal changes, heart changes happen, which is repentance. I am going my way. God calls me to repent. So I'm turning around 180 degrees. I'm going to God's way. This is a requirement, or the requirement of God's grace as well. We cannot repent ourselves and God-given as well. But without, without this essential process of two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith, the faith of just verbal profession of faith is pseudo-faith. Not a saving faith. Faith. It's as if when you like a girl and you want to get, get married and you have all these feelings there. Are you married? No. Okay, you compare the notes. Oh, these are the problems we might have. These are the conflicts we might, you know, personality tests and all that. And you went through count, premarital counseling. Okay, intellectually, we know this might be working. Some problem, but who doesn't have any problem? This relationship has 80% success rate and 20% problems. That we're better than anybody who will have 80% problems and 20 So emotionally, you're in love, and intellectually, you are in agreement. This might work. Are you married? There is a volitional part. I mean, it's a funny that this generation kind of puts us down on that, puts down on the commitment part, because scared to death in this generation. In front of the pastor, you say, I do. I do what? I do commit and covenant until the death separates, uh, separates us. In sickness and death, in, in, in health, in, in rich, and in poverty. 
in all kinds of things, even if she gets in, got into car accident and wipes out her beauty, even if her, his leg is broken, flown out of the car, and never be able to walk again, I commit to love and to cherish. You cross the line. On the first day, there might not be change. But the full weight of faith. This, this chair can carry me. This is faith. And saying, I believe that chair can carry me. I think God only knows there are many churchgoers. We must not put an ultimate judgment who is saved and who is not saved, who belongs to Christ and who doesn't belong to Christ. When we do that, the, the very uh, problematic things will come out. Number one, if that person was a pastor or preacher or evangelist or very devout follower of Christ, once that person turns away from faith, we've seen those people who doesn't walk with God anymore, who actually claims not a, he or she's not a Christian anymore. So we are really just perplexed of what, happen, what happened. The reality is that person may not have been never saved at all. The self-deception can happen in that. And then it messes us up. And another way of really looking at it is presumption. I love Keith Green, who was a, just a mere singer, Christian singer, who died young to, to you know, uh, in those 70s, I still remember just listening to, as a teenager, listening to his music. And his concert is like a revival. He shouts out, just because you go to McDonald's, you don't become Mac Big Mac. Just because you go to church, you don't become Christian. That's his message. Uh, Apostle Paul in this generation. I promise to keep it short, so I got to move on. Sorry. In light of that, there are three questions uh, for the self-examination. In Second uh, Corinthians 13 through verses 1 through 10, and there are three parts. It's basically warning, exhortation, and prayer. And warning gives us why, exhortation gives us how or what. And prayer gives us what, for what, or to what end. Let's start with the first, I mean, the first question, why? Warning is, <clears throat> starting with verse 1, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of, the, of two or three witnesses. Are warned those who sinned before, 
and all the others, and I warned them. Now, while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are, for we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So why the warning is this? Paul's stern warning of the Corinthians is also for us against the fruitless dead faith, which is why self-examination is necessary. If you look at the uh, verse 1, the second part, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses is taken, quoted from Deuteronomy 19.15 It was the law among Israelites. When you have some kind of a legal official charge, have at least two, three. And that application goes on to when you hear accusation against an elder. Do not listen to any accusation unless there's a two or three witnesses there. The whole thing about what Paul is bringing is that I plan to visit you for the third time. First time he planted a church, founded a church, and he went on to other missionary journey, and he wrote first and second letter of that Apostle Paul, to encourage them to correct their problems. The first letter was lost. Let's call it a letter A was lost. Letter B was what we know as a 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, this letter B, was not effective either. So he planned to have a personal face-to-face -face visit. Thinking that, as an apostle who planted a church, who founded a church, and they believed and came to know Christ through me, therefore, when I show up in person, they'll listen and change. And the First Corinthians chapter five talks about this sexual sin, incest. Someone was living with his father's wife, in other words, stepmother. This doesn't even happen among the pagans, unbelievers. So you ought to deal with it, this. The church really hasn't dealt with it. The problem of their gatherings for first century church, the uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, was a full-blown meal. And the rich people took the good seeds and they ate well. And then rich, the poor people and people who didn't have much, were treated unfairly with, with inequality. Those things didn't change. 
second visit, instead of him them repent, being repentant, Paul was humiliated because not only there was really not a full repentance from the church as a whole, but one of them, some scholars, we're not for sure, some scholars think that it's the same person of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the person who was having incest with his stepmother. Maybe he confronted it. The problem is, we don't know for sure, the church was wish-wash. And Paul, in his weakness, meekness, he didn't apply strong, stern church discipline, which is really good principle we are learning. Unless the church is unified in a way, our church will not execute the church discipline in a harsh way. That's going to be a sure way of splitting church. So any kind of strong guidance we have done, we were made sure our leadership team was unified, our, our intervention team was unified each time. He calls that painful visit, second visit or tearful vision. He was humiliated. He was hurt deeply. And then because of that, he writes severe letter, letter C. And this was also lost. But he was afraid about severity of the letter he wrote. He had had some regrets about it. But by God's grace, the severe letter was effective. People repented. Titus who carried the uh, letter, reported good news. And Paul was delighted. Out of joy, he's writing letter D, which is 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 through 9 is joyful celebration. We don't know what happened, but second, chapter 10 through 13 changes tone again. But probably, I agree with the scholars who say, these kind of long letters, he doesn't write in one day and send it. Probably several days, even weeks. And the, the most updated news heard was some of the church members were turned to the false apostles, super apostles again. So he's trying to correct that. He's confronting, confronting those minor uh, minority in the group, which was affecting the entire church. So this morning, is Paul is saying, when I come this time, third visit, I will not spare the unrepentant. It makes us kind of curious about what he means by spare, not spare. Does he mean just stern warning and just confronting them verbally?
Many scholars, and I agree with that, I think it's more than that. Acts chapter 13, Paul was traveling with Barnabas in first missionary, and this magician, witchcraft person basically, continued to imitate, imitate them and try to use the name of Jesus. And he cursed at them. From this point on, you will be blind. And then he became blind. We are also familiar with the Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter six, um, when uh, Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the apostles, who said. Um, We sold every possession, land, and this is all we have. And we, they let, let them down, let down, you know, put them down before apostles' feet. And Apostle Peter said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You could have just said, oh, this is a portion of our giving. We sold the land. This is not all. But because incredible things were going on, maybe the peer pressure happened. So many people gave their entire possessions to the church and became a communal, literally communal uh, community together. That because of that, the moment Apostle Peter said, they died physically to cleanse the church. By the way, it's Acts chapter 5, right? Not 6. So what would that mean? We don't know exactly what Paul might do. The only thing that we are for sure is that he will not forbear and continually become meek and personal, personally patient with everyone. He will bring use authority. He hates to do that because he still wants to be meek like Christ. Um, and Paul is saying by quoting Deuteronomy and then in light of some incidents that happened during Deuteronomy times with Korah and disobedient the people who were rebelled against uh, Moses, they're consumed by the fire and the earthquake. The implication is, is clear. Do not mislead yourself. If you rationalize your, con rationalize your sin, and just because you believe the right thing, easy believism again, that you might not be saved at all. Your eternal life is in Christ, but make sure you are in Christ. Oh, this is really so relevant, because in my previous ministry, I look back, and there's some very fervent people who volunteer for different things who's not walking with God anymore. 
And I wonder, whatever happened to the fervent faith? It was not saving faith. Oh, a little, little uh, clarification. I do not mean at all of those people who doesn't, who's not, who doesn't have a consistent church life are not saved at all. I'm saying some of them might not be even really come to the saving faith, but some of them might have walked, with, walked away in staying in this obedient state of their life. If they continue on, they prove to be their saving faith is not saving faith. Remember last week, one of the key qualities of true spiritual leader is concern for sp spiritual welfare of, of others, whether than his leadership's success or not. Paul is concerned about them. Second question is how then? Let's focus on what it is. Paul exhorts the Corinthians also today's Christians like us to be to do a self-examination in light of the urgency of the warnings, verse 5 and 6. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Paul already called the Corinthians the saints in Christ, the called ones in First and Second Corinthians, his letter. But he is saying, what I exhort you is self-examination. Which imply, implication is this? Self-examination is for every believer. But there is a little bit of a problem or a roadblock and hindrance in that because some people, some of us may misunderstand self-examination as an introspection. You continually analyze so much that you become just paralyzed with self-condemnation. I'm no good. And I, God might, might not have chosen me and going into that direction. No, this is not self -determination. Another one is probably more common with Corinthians and today's Christian is presumption. Once saved, well, eternally saved. So I believe I received Jesus Christ when I was seventh grade and such and such. Or I'm not walking with God. I'm just partying all the time and I'm sleeping around. But God is greater than my sin. He saved me and I'm a Christian. And Paul is saying, examine yourself. Do not do presumption. My parents were elders. My parents were pastors. My parents were missionaries. I'm a fourth generation Christian. Do not presume. What does a self-examination look like? There's three tests. Number one is doctrinal test. The truth test. And tr obedience to truth test, in other words. Okay. Examine yourself 
Whether you are in faith, whether you are trusting a lot, no. In the faith, specific faith, which means the gospel, true gospel of Christ. The Second Corinthians reveals so much a problem is centered around false apostles bringing the other Jesus, the false gospel. And we have things like that everywhere because of useful God mentality. We have a prosperity gospel all around. The sin is not mentioned. The repentance is not needed because it's done away. The fancy word for that wrong theology is over-realized eschatology. The simply put, over-realized eschatology means the end time things, the salvation will come to completion. We can experience now. Because Jesus accomplished our conference, salvation. The prosperity gospel, triumphalism, all that is based on that. What's the consequence? We continually think Myself first in, in faith and my, my family first in the church life. My advancement, my improvement, my promotion. The doctrinal faith is important. The second thing is test yourself or do you not realize this about yourself, Jesus Christ in you? It, it is more in a way, subjective experience. Jesus Christ indwelling in us at, through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus is indwelling in everybody who is born again, regenerated people. In that, there's a twofold sign of that. Personal, personally, the Holy Spirit confirms us that we are, uh, we call our Father, our God, Abba. Father. Insurance, inner, inner assurance of the Holy Spirit that we belong to God. Oh, that is personal. In my deepest, darkest uh, moments that God reminds me, Holy Spirit reminds me that I belong to God. But there is a second aspect, character aspect of Holy Spirit, God, Spirit of Christ dwelling, indwelling in us. Character of meekness. If Jesus Christ is in us and living through us, we will like live like Christ-like way. The character will show up. So even if people who are hot-tempered, easily angered person, are transformed into Christ's patience, and the person has a self-control. The anger is, anger is strained by self-control, by the Holy Spirit. The person who is apathetic about others, personality-wise, not feelers at all, but compassionate. For those who are hurting, for those who are weak, for those who are poor. And lastly, social, I call it love test. Love one another. Live one another. 
that's actually ending mark, remark of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, when he ends, he agreed with one another, live harmon in harmony with one another, affirm one another. And that, it, that is so evident in first letter of John as well. If you call God who is not sin, and then you say you love God who is invisible, when you are seeing these brothers and sisters who are visible, right in front of you, tangible, and you do not love them, how can you say you love God? It's inconsistent in that sense. As I wrap up, I thought about John, Jonathan Edwards at a young age. He wrote so many sentences of resolve. This is one of his resolve in his journal. In July 4th and July 13th, 1723, Edwards wrote, resolved Whenever my feelings begin to appear in the least out of order, when I am conscious of the least uneasiness within or the least irregularity without, I will then submit myself to the strictest examination. Oh, we need to learn this. We're too sloppy. We're too undisciplined in Christian life. The cheap grace just took over any kind of just strength to pursue disciplined life. And the spiritual discipline becomes something that we don't like because there's too much structure, too much um, training involved. Let me just quickly end up with this. The fourth question is for what? To the end. The Christ's ultimate desire revealed in Paul's prayer is for us as well as for the Corinthian, which is prompt and full restoration of our faith and obedient life. Verse 7, but we pray to God that we may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but you ha may do what is right though we may seem to have failed. For we, do, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying is, ah, I, I wish you guys can repent and be ready for my arrival because I hate to see your unrepentance. But my ultimate goal is not my leadership's failure. If you guys fail, I will fail too. That's not my concern. My ultimate concern is to build you up, 
to, to see your full restoration. And we need to hear this. What's the purpose of self-examination? Not because of we want to be living in fear or I wish, I wish kind of thing or despair. I, I am no good. But the hope of restoration is anyone who is broken and contrite heart to surrender ourselves to the to control of the Holy Spirit. Grace is more. Our sins are more. His mercy is greater. I conclude with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He writes, I commend solitude to any of you who are seeking salvation. First, that you may study well your case as in the sight of God, few men and women truly know themselves as they really are. Most people have seen themselves in a looking glass, but there is another looking glass which gives true reflections into which few men look to study one's self in the light of God's word and carefully to go over one's condition, examining both the inward and the outward sins and using all the tests which are given us in the scriptures would be a very healthy exercise. But how very few care to go through it. Crossway Church our unified resolve in fasting and prayer is to humble ourselves in this kind of self-examination. And my charge to each one of you, including me, starting with me, to ask God to reveal your sins, your inward and outward sins, and boldly ask God to reveal the church's sins that we might repent and we might be repent, repentant and restored. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are uh, a great God. Your holiness uh, reveals our sin and our depravity. Thank you also that you are loving God and your grace and mercy is far greater and far more than our many sins and our brokennesses. So I pray, Lord, uh, in the coming weeks and months as we wait for your answer, your guidance for our church in 2019 and through fasting and prayer chain, teach us to Remain humble and teach us to examine ourselves in the truth, in the doctrine, in our experience and character, in our love for one another, in spiritual community of Crossway.
Thank you so much for this grace and mercy and your guidance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.